every single marketer and every single brand should be attempting to earn a disproportionate share of conversation. If you work for an organization where they say, bring us a chart that goes up and to the right, you have a challenge. Half the money I spend on advertising is wasted. The trouble is, I don't know which half. I am here to inspire you, to excite you, to motivate you, to transform you, to energize you. Hello and welcome to Demand Gen Visionaries. This episode features an interview with Susan Ganation, CMO of Granicus. Susan is a multi-time CMO with an impressive 25-year marketing career that includes leadership roles at Clara Bridge, New Brand Analytics, and Deloitte Consulting. On this episode, Susan discusses the unique challenges and opportunities that come with selling exclusively to government entities. She also expands on her career-long objective to convert leads faster, why she says there is no silver bullet in demand gen, and her philosophy that you have to do everything right. But before we get into it, here's a brief word from our sponsor. Today's episode is brought to you by our friends at Qualified.com. If you are a B2B marketer who has always dreamed of knowing when a qualified prospect is on your site and being able to talk to them instantly, now you can. Learn more at Qualified.com. And now, please enjoy this interview between Susan Ganation, CMO of Granicus, and your host, Ian Faison. Welcome to Demand Gen Visionaries. I'm Ian Faison, CEO of Caspian Studios, and today we are joined by special guest, Susan, how are you? Hi, Ian. I'm great. So glad to be with you today. Yeah, great to have you on the show. Excited to chat about your background, multi-time CMO, and uh, and obviously the cool stuff that you're doing at Granicus here in, in America. So let's get started. First question, first job in demand gen, what was it? I was working for a very small company when I took over my first marketing job uh, as a CMO. So I was really just new to the the role in figuring out how to do demand gen for a social media analytics company. We sold mostly to restaurants and hotels. And so I um, figured out demand gen by following the HubSpot model and um, figured out how to write great content that would build trust. So that was my first foray. And flash forward to today, what does it mean to be CMO of Granicus? Tell us a little bit about this company. Granicus is such a great company. I mean, you you might look at a company like Granicus that only sells to government and think snooze, but it's actually really exciting. We sell to federal, state, local agencies. We have about a half a million government employees who use our technology, and they use it to engage residents, constituents, citizens that they're interacting with. And they use it to build everything from their government website to enable digitally enable the services off of those websites, uh, communicate via email, social media, text, and then to also run their internal processes like civic meetings. So you have to have a meeting, an agenda, voting, and then ultimately store recordings of those meetings so the public can see you know, how the government is making decisions. All of that purpose-built for government in the Granicus platform. And we call that thing a civic engagement platform. It's one of the first of its kind. One of the best things that I got to do is we, we named it. And then all of a sudden, all of our competitors followed our naming. So super proud to kind of be first in the running and continuing to innovate those tools and that technology. 
I'm super excited about your all solution. Uh, I spent a decade in the military, so I know how it is using many, many government systems. And, uh, and I can tell you there is no place that is more, you know, quote unquote, ripe for disruption than, than our, great, uh, our great government. And it's stuff like this that really makes a difference. I mean, so I'm totally with you there. That's one of the reasons we were excited to have you on the show. And I think that marketing to them is obviously a, a totally different challenge, which we'll get into. But but just in terms of like the mission of the platform, it is really like it's so important to make sure that every level of government has cutting edge tools. Like this is what we all use, right? Like everybody in business uses this stuff. And if our counterparts in the government don't have it, then uh, it's not it's not good for any of us. It's such a great point. So and we'll, we'll often say this during our sales cycles, which is people today expect an Amazon-like experience. They expect instant information at their fingertips, same-day delivery, to be, to be able to do everything digitally. And the reality is, in most government organizations today, a lot of their systems are cobbled together. They're either some solution that was built for commercial industry, trying to retrofit it into a government use case, very difficult to do. Because in the commercial industry, you just have to satisfy anywhere from 10 to 50, 60% of your audience. And the solution you build can be thought of as innovative and amazing. In government, you don't have that luxury. You have to satisfy 100% of your audience. So that means you have to be highly secure. You have to be ADA compliant. You have to reach every single audience. Guess what? That government scenario, that means there are tons of people that live off grid and you still have to be able to get services to them despite the fact that they don't have a computer at home. You don't have the luxury of not being mobile enabled with your website. Must be mobile enabled, must be ADA compliant. Services must be at people's fingertips and they must be easy to find and uh, easy to understand for people of all skill sets. And so because you don't have that luxury, but there's these very high citizen expectations because we are used to this very digital world, you know, what we're finding is that governments have to basically start again. The cool thing is with today's latest technology, you can actually get into these low code, no code solutions where you can distribute the workload. You can rewrite these workflows, uh, rewrite these systems and or connect to other backend systems very quickly kind of iteratively, agilely roll out new tech. So it's possible. And I love when I see the sparkle in our customers' eyes when they realize, hey, I, I could do this. I can do it quickly. I can start with this one use case and I can roll through many more over time. I think that the big question on all of our listeners' minds is, are you in the DMVs yet? And when <laughs> when will you take over all of the DMVs? <laughs> Yeah, uh, DMV is actually a very specific use case. Let me give you a great use case of where we are and what really matters. Um, it's interesting, given the last year that we all just had as we've gone through COVID, as soon as COVID hit, think of how many people ended up in the unemployment lines, you know, millions. And guess what? They could no longer walk into an unemployment office, fill out a form, talk to somebody face to face and get a check because of COVID. So how are they going to do this? They had to do it digitally. We worked with the state of Oklahoma and over one weekend, in a weekend, we stood up digital unemployment check delivery. 
So people could apply digitally, they could go through that approval process and hear digitally exactly whether you know they were eligible for unemployment or not. Then we combined that with our reach in Oklahoma to literally hundreds of thousands of citizens. And we used our email technology to push the message out that this system was live. And within hours, we had tens of thousands of people applying for unemployment digitally, right? So otherwise, these people were literally, you probably saw pictures from every state, really. They were standing in line six feet apart, wearing their masks all day long in the middle of being afraid of how COVID might affect them. We knew a lot less back then than we know now. And, you know, so the alternative was horrible. And this new, this new way is so much better. So it's just one small example of what we do. I mean, we, we get people the services they need. We help feed children. We help children get into foster care. Uh, we keep people safe. All of that is just so incredibly important and something to be super proud of for not just for me as the CMO of Granicus, but all of the people that work at Granicus. Let's go to our first segment, the trust tree. With the knowledge you've been given, you are now on the inside of what I like to call the circle of trust. What, I thought we were in the trust tree in the nest, are we not? This is where we can go and feel honest and trusted, and you can share those deepest, darkest demand gen secrets. So you started mentioning customers like Oklahoma. Can you share a little bit more about who is your kind of ideal customer profile? Who are you selling to? Who are your customers? We started as a U.S.-based company and sold to federal, state, and local organizations. So we're in every federal agency, we're in every state, and then we have 4,500 more local agencies. We've grown through both organic growth as well as acquisition. And so we now support Canada as well as the UK. And recently we did another acquisition that brought us over to Australia. So basically if there's like English speaking country, then our technology works there and it supports that. When you think of Granicus, you can think of civic engagement and taking anything that where a citizen interacts with government and making a digital experience instead of requiring an in-person visit. That's amazing. So as you're creating your demand gen strategy? What goes into that? What goes into your your go-to-market? I have a philosophy on demand gen. And my catchphrase is, there is no silver bullet. There's no one thing you can do that will make an amazing demand uh, gen cycle. And so you have to do everything right. <laughs> and you have to think of the entire funnel from your potential buyer learning about you all the way through to them using your tool and then possibly purchasing other tools from you. So that cross-sell example. And so what I try to make sure my team understands is that in order to run a great demand gen campaign, they have to think top to bottom. They have to think about who we're talking to. They have to think about what messages will attract that person. They have to think about how we follow up with that person after we might do an event um, with them or share content with them. They have to think about how the salesperson is going to take over that conversation once we turn it over to them. Everything in that cycle has to be pristine. If there's even a little bit of fray on that thread, it will break. And so 
no silver bullet. You kind of have to do it all right. I love it. I couldn't agree more. Do you feel like selling to the government is really different, kind of different, you know, not so different? What's it like? Yeah. So my other roles as uh, in marketing and product management, product marketing throughout my career have all been primarily to commercial. You know, we'd work for a commercial B2B company that sold a little bit to government, but this is my first time in, you know, selling exclusively to government agencies. And I will say it is different in a really great way that I just absolutely love. And that is that they're not competitive with one another. So what San Jose does, San Francisco wants to do as well. That's a great point. Yeah. And so when when I'm marketing, if I can give great case studies, customer use cases, and I say, hey, Miami, this is what's happening you know, over here in Coral Gables. Yes, you're bigger than Coral Gables in Florida, but they decided to take this advanced approach. What do you think? Would you like to take it? They listen to one another. And you know what? They pick up the phone and they call one another. So we, we end up with references probably being one of the most important things we can do. Whereas in the past, you know, had I been sold to a financial institution, for example, Citibank was not going to want to talk to Chase, right? Because they were competitive. Yeah, they might want to see the case study, then they might not want their case study shared so that their competitor gets a leg up. No, I mean, the anonymized case study stuff is so brutal. You know, we talk about that from time to time. So you have the exact opposite thing, where you're trying to really accelerate that word of mouth. That's right. That's right. We, and we're trying to build community. We're trying to connect these people and show them that their peers, one town over, one city over, one state over, are doing these things in, in advanced ways, and they can too. We are trying to create this environment of best practices all the time. How connected are they now? I'd imagine that this is something that, you know, they, these folks, maybe they used to go to conferences or, or events or things like that. Like, what is the connective tissue between these things? I mean, I, I know some people that have worked on the on the government side and kind of there's sort of a belief that at times there's a little bit of a siloed nature in terms of like what what different cities are trying to do or or uh, especially, you know, as separated by geography. Yeah, so they they are primarily connected through associations. And one of the marketing challenges that gives me is that there are thousands of associations. There are associations for every little type of title in an organization. So there's clerk associations, there's IT associations, (laughs) there's, um, you know, finance, government finance associations. And then what we have to do is work through all of them in order to build our brand with the association leads and all the association members. When I first got to Granicus three years ago, the primary marketing spend and function was going to these trade association trade shows, all in-person events. That's basically how the company spent their marketing dollars and their marketing effort. And we, you know, we need to keep in touch with those associations. But what we're also trying to do is build our own community. So at the start of COVID last March, we stood up something called Gov Community. And within a month or so, we had more than 20,000 members and it continues to grow. And what they do there is share information with one another. Wow. They're incredibly interested in talking to one another. 
couple months ago or so, I think we just we ran a mixology event where we brought heads of communications from across the US together into one event. We mixed up some drinks, which was the fun part. And then we spent the last 45 minutes or so enabling them to talk to one another. And then when we shut down the Zoom call, people actually emailed us and said, hey, you know, we were in the middle of a conversation. We wanted to keep going. <laughs> can you supply me the list of everybody that was at this event? Because I want to make sure I have their emails and I can continue these conversations. So there's just this thirst for ongoing community and interaction with one another. I mean, that is, that's music to every marketer's ears. That's the nirvana, right? That's what everybody wants to hear. They want their community to want you to be a hub for them, right? Like right. They, if you can be the one who can connect people seamlessly to each other, that's a really advantageous place to be. Yeah, I loved it. And then one of the unsolicited emails we got afterwards was, Granicus is a class act. And so you want your brand to be recognized that way. So exciting to be able to bring them together. And so who are the different people that are that are in these type of personas? So is it like there's CIOs of, of states and cities? Is there, you mentioned like, there's all, all sorts of different positions within those areas. Are you trying to sell to all of them? Or are you trying to just influence a bunch of them and drive brand awareness? Because I know there is a, a committee kind of a buying approach when it comes to government. Yes, there often is. And additionally, for certain size purchases, they have to bring it to council and then council has to approve. So there is a multifaceted approach where our personas that we're working with that drive our deal, we call them a catalyst, right? So we're working with the catalyst and then we're also educating the catalyst on how to sell internally in their organization. So we are selling to everyone from a governor to other elected officials, to city managers, to heads of communications. We are selling to public information officers, heads of finance. There are many, many different personas involved. And that is another challenge we have is, of course, defining those personas accurately enough to be able to speak their language and then helping them talk to one another. So helping the clerk talk to the head of IT about why the clerk wants to bring in our software and how IT should value our software because of our security, our scalability, high availability, and all the other things that are critical to governments capturing information about citizens. And so we certainly have to satisfy all those different personas. Okay, let's get to our next segment, the playbook. This is what's great about sports. This is what the greatest thing about sports is. You play to win the game. Hello? You play to win the game. This is where you open up that playbook and talk about the tactics that help you win. What are three channels or tactics that are your most uncuttable budget items? One of the first things I did when I got to Granicus was rework the website. And I would say it was a bit of a mess because it was really product oriented. A new buyer may not know what products they want. They just know what use cases or problems they want to solve. And so I would say continual improvement over my web property, along with making it SEO enabled, is something I will never cut. I work with an agency out of North Carolina called Peak2. The head of that agency and I are tied at the hip where we hotline each other all the time, text message each other. So website and SEO enablement of that website, number one. Number two is account-based marketing. We're using a tool called Sixth Sense, and it's helping us to understand 
buying cycle. We're catching people real time as they're interacting with our digital environment and we're catching them while they're hot. And we kind of use Sixth Sense in combination with a tool called Qualified, which hey is now. where this is being hosted. That's right. <laughs> little, little shout out to my buds at Qualified. Um, so we, we would put those two together and say, we absolutely have to have them. You know, one of the CMOs that I just think was a rock star was the former CMO at Domo. And she talked about how when you do have a hot lead, it has a half-life and you have to catch them while they're hot. And so that's been my objective as a CMO for a long time is to follow Heather's model and um, really focus on you know, the speed at which we're talking to these people, catching them while they're thinking of us. And the last thing I would not stop spending on is my BDR team. Uh, three years ago when I started at Granicus, it was eight people. Now we're up to 35. And when you don't have a highly functioning BDR team, and I've talked to hundreds of CMOs about this, you might as well take your leads and throw them into a lead graveyard because salespeople don't have the diligence or the time often to follow up in the way a BDR team does, have a, a multi-touch cadence and the, the practice of continuing to go after those hot leads. And so I would say that the people spend that is probably 100% most important to me is that, is that BDR function. So does BDR, does that fall under you? Yes. Yes, it does. And I've worked in organizations where BDRs are in sales. As long as you have a really, really tight relationship, it's great. But if the BDRs are off running their own programs and using their own messaging, again, it's back to that message of there's no silver bullet in marketing and you have to have a continual funnel without phrase anywhere down that string. If the BDRs are speaking a different language and using different messaging, you will confuse the buyer and more often than not lose them in that cycle. Yeah, it's a really good point. I mean, I think we're probably biased because we're a marketing podcast, but but I think that, um, and I totally understand the um, the idea that you want a career path people that that want to go into into sales. But I think that that's a two way street, right? Because there's a lot of people that go from sales into marketing, right? And nobody ever talks about that career path as well. That it's like there's people that go from BDRs into marketing, not just that go from you know BDRs into to BAEs. And like you said. The BDRs, their most important job is getting the messaging right. The sales rep can go off message or do whatever they want to do to try to close the deal because they are so close to sitting with the person that that person's not going to want to talk features and benefits, you know, or if they if they're going to Tahoe on the weekend and they need to figure out a way to get the deal done or whatever the whatever sales is doing. But the BDRs, it's like you really can't have them freelancing, right? You absolutely can't. And, you know, I think the the most important part of a BDR's job is ensuring that they understand what value that buyer might be looking for. And that really depends on the thing they just did with you, right? So it's not just that the BDRs use consistent messaging with us. They use messaging per activity that that person came inbounded to us through. So for example, we run a webinar about how to use the American Rescue Plan, which by the way is $350 billion that state and local governments can use 
to help their citizens through this time of COVID. Now, that $350 billion can be used for software. So I run an event where I tell our buyers, our constituents, how to do that. If the BDR follows up with, hey, do you want to talk to Granicus? They're off message and we just lost them. But if the BDR follows up with, I would like to let you know that the most important thing you should have taken away from that webinar is that not only can you use this for software, but you can use this for a multi-year software purchase and that communicating with citizens is part of that software, then from that aspect, the lead is more likely to follow on and we're more likely to open and not just an opportunity, but an opportunity that's going to close fast. So it's just one example of, um, you know, that message has to be tailored to the thing that potential buyer just did. And we spend a tremendous amount of time, my campaign managers, when they run an event or any part of a campaign, they brief the BDRs, BDRs know that incoming thing, and they get a specific message for each one of those campaign activities. I love that. That's really cool. And that type of uh, the campaign that you mentioned, I'm curious, you know, how are you following up after something like that? Is it just, you know, immediately after that? Or are you kind of checking the the website traffic to see, you know, how people are coming in off that? And obviously, you know, like qualifies the amazing sponsor of the show. So feel free to, to share some insights on how, how you all use qualified as well. After an event like that, we are following up with everybody who attended, of course, right? Because we need to tell them, you know, what they heard and how we can support their efforts. We're also following up with everyone who didn't attend. And then we're watching for on demand. So the cool thing about qualified is that when someone visits our website, say they're going to visit our website to watch the on-demand version of that, we can use the qualified workflow and logic to understand what pages they landed on on our website. And then we can have a detailed conversation with them. The most amazing thing is we actually categorize our leads into A's and B's, C's and D's, right? So if you A's and B's look like our other customers, And so if a contact out of an A account lands on that page to go watch that event, my BDR can start the conversation instantly with them. Qualified routes that person to a live conversation. And what we've found is that where when someone does a request a demo, which on my website, we call it see it live because I just found that that's a more friendly call to action. But um, when someone requests to see it live, about 10% of those are gonna turn into opportunities. When someone comes through qualified, it's 25%. Wow. It's remarkable, right? And we are so happy (laughs) that we found this tool and that we had these connections to, to bring it live in our organization. But again, this conversation just supports my philosophy of you have to do everything right. And another thing of doing everything right is being with the buyer that you most want at the time they're there for you. Qualified helps us do that. That's so cool to hear. I mean, obviously, you know, they're the uh, presenters uh, of the show and we love them dearly, but it's really cool to hear that. And I think it also speaks to something that, you know, you mentioned this on-demand capability, right? Which is the fact that you have this killer asset that you create, this webinar that people can come and ask questions in real time. And then you have this on-demand asset 
that you can market this asset over and over and over again for people who who miss the webinar who can drop in but then you can have the conversations with them in real time and that's the thing where like we we love webinars so much because people can ask questions and do that stuff but you know with qualified now you can you can still have the answer any questions in real time with them when they're actually consuming an asset like that which is an added benefit and it's just something like gosh we've we've wanted this sort of stuff for so long as marketers is like what if we, what if every one of your pages can be a conversation rather than just that person sitting on the other end doing some research like gosh I, I really have some questions right now but I don't know where I would go yeah and I don't know if it's just me because I'm aging but I think that memories are short and so you know catching someone real time, while the information is fresh and top of mind can make a dramatic difference in, you know, the, the overall conversion metrics, which is why we see those great numbers from our qualified leads. You know, another thing that I'm so curious about is government budget cycles are very different or maybe very similar in some ways, I guess, but they're very specific. And as you mentioned, there's specific uses and there's things like that. You mentioned a little bit how you can create content around those things and how you need to help people figure out how to buy. This is a hugely important part of selling B2G. And I'm just curious, how does that fit into your marketing collateral? How does that fit into your you know, biz dev strategy uh, and, and what you're empowering your people with? The cycles do, fortunately for Granicus, the cycles do shift. So federal end of year is different than many of the states end of the year, which is different than local government's end of year. So unlike a B2B company selling to commercial where most of the end of year is December, we do get it varied throughout the year. So that actually helps our ability to market to them. We don't have to do everything all at the same time. So it does mean that we get to pepper our marketing efforts throughout the year and it can have the same impact. The other thing is proving ROI. And sometimes ROI in the use cases that we're focused on, which is citizen engagement, how, so how do you quantify the value of reaching every citizen? How do you quantify the value of reaching hard to reach populations? So we have to show people the savings that they can deliver internally, the value that they can kind of deliver to the community just by reaching more people. We work with a specialty firm to create ROI calculators and toolkits, not uncommon in the B2B software space, certainly, but I think a little bit harder in the government environment that we're in. Having said that, though, one of the really amazing things about people who work in government is they feel that it's their obligation to understand the latest technology and the latest capabilities that they could bring to their environment to better serve citizens. And with that attitude, you feel like you at least get an at-bat. And I think then it's just up to us to show them the value. And we're pretty good at that, obviously. We have so many customers, but at least we're in this environment where because these government workers have committed to a life of service, they do feel it's their obligation to provide the best service possible. That's amazing. It really is such a great point that when you have a buyer that is clearly looking for 
an edge. They're trying to figure things out that you do have an advantage to figure out, like, you know, you're going to get an app bad if you do the things correctly. Whereas for a lot of people, especially like a lot of B2B, you know, there are these builder buy conversations. There's all these things that happen. You might not ever get an app bad. It's about like, you know, hey, can we get our sales rep in the building to actually share what the heck we do? But for you all, as you mentioned, it's like, you got to win the app bat, right? You got to get the hit. So it is a totally different challenge. That's really unique. Yeah. Unique in a, I think, a fortunate way. Yeah. No kidding. Do you have any favorite campaigns that you've ran over the past couple of years? Yeah. Uh, I think probably our best campaign was last year. The government rolled out a program called CARES. You might remember the CARES Act. Mm-hmm. And it set a urgency. So it there was a, a funding that state and local governments could use. They had to apply for these grants, but it gave a, there was a step-by-step guide on how to use those funds. There was a sense of urgency. There was a deadline. They had to be used by December 31st, 2020. And they needed to be applied to fighting coronavirus and supporting the community in the fight for coronavirus. So it, it, there was a burning need, if you will. And so we ran this CARES Act campaign. It was multifaceted. There was a CARES Act guide. I think we did five webinars. We did roundtables. We certainly did paid ads to make sure people learned about all of those things. It was the premier feature on our website. So it was was what I would call a premier campaign from Granicus. And we saw the outcome was just dramatic. We had thousands of people attend at a great rate. We turned those into leads. Our salespeople were able to use that sense of urgency to close these deals very quickly. So that was something we just, we really did right. We also partnered with a third party who was an expert in how to use grants funding, how to apply for grants funding and how to use it. And that was a stroke of genius. An idea that came from our head of local sales. And, you know, we jumped on that from a marketing perspective and made that happen. So probably one of my most favorite campaigns because it was so multifaceted and had these like critical elements to make it valuable. How about a campaign that was maybe your best learning experience? Yeah. Um, So I am a huge fan of reuse, right? If you find a message that works, keep reusing it. Use it in other markets. Use it with other buyers. And uh, last year, we did run a campaign for local governments about building trust and battling misinformation in the public. And it went well. And then the one that didn't go well is when we tried to run that same campaign and targeted it at the federal government. And it didn't go well. Probably, I don't want to get too political here, but it probably didn't go so well because You know, we had a commander in chief who was like the head of all misinformation and, um, you know, Twitter in his point of view was exactly what was being proliferated. So without getting too into the weeds on any one person's political views, that message on battling misinformation just totally fell flat. (laughs) Yeah, that's hilarious because you're totally right that it's like two different customer segments take the same exact word in totally different contexts. That's right. That's right. And so what lesson did I learn from that? I learned know your audience, right? And it's funny because uh, somebody early on in my career had had said that to me and I, I often would think about it. 
But when I looked at the results of that campaign, I was like, oh, we didn't really know our audience. We should have we should have tailored this in a different way. That idea of reusing the same message isn't going to work. And so, yeah, you, you pick yourself up, dust yourself off and figure out the right message for that audience. Let's get to our next segment, the dust up. Uh-oh, here comes trouble. You may have heard that there was a dust up involving yours truly. And now we've got a wild scrum with fights breaking out all over the place. And it is getting really ugly as we've got punches and kicks. This is where we talk about healthy tension, whether that's with your board, your competitors, your sales team maybe, or anyone else. Have you had a memorable dust up in your career, Susan? Uh, yeah, I mean, you know, it wouldn't be a career if we didn't have a few of those, right? <laughs> um, I'm going to go back a company to my, my previous CMO role. As a head of marketing, we were producing a great number of leads for our sales team, and they weren't making it past sales qualified. So they'd get to this SQL level, and they'd just sit there and sit there and sit there. So my approach was, let me go to each individual salesperson who's got a sales qualified lead and just ask them, why is it sitting there? What's going on? Why aren't you able to move it forward? You know, I did that with as many of those SQLs as I could. And then I had the CEO come back and tell me that I had sharp elbows. And I I had to go look it up because I was like, what, what does sharp elbows even mean? So I figured out that, you know, he thought that I was being brash or rude or hard on these people because they weren't moving these stage twos along. I'm actually really glad that that happened because it taught me why those leads got stuck. I naturally probably went at it and thought these salespeople are being lazy and they weren't. It's just that we didn't, in many cases, we didn't have the right catalyst. We didn't have the right buyer. And then we didn't give the salespeople the tools to figure out how to take the people we had and traverse the organization to find the catalyst. In retrospect, had I known that instead of, hey, why aren't you moving this lead along? I would have said, let me help you move this lead along. And so I'm really glad it happened. I'm grateful that of the lesson I learned there. But yeah, it was it was a bit of a dust up. Let me tell you, it was, it was a lot of like finger pointing and, you know, he said, she said. But now I would know how to handle it. Then not so much. <laughs> that's great. Yeah. Well, it's stuff like that. It's like work the problem, right? And it's like in the moment, maybe that's not happening. But in retrospect, you're like, we could have just worked the problem. The problem was that the leads weren't, something was happening. We don't know. You know, it's like when nobody does the dishes in your house, you don't blame it on your significant other. You're like the imaginary Fred. It's like, ah, Fred's just not doing it today. It's like, it's not either of you are or both of you are technically at fault, but um, maybe easier to to find an external focus or something. That's right. That's right. That's a good tactic. I might use that. Yeah, yeah. The I we heard that the other day. Well, my wife and I were joking because she's eight months pregnant. We were joking about how a bunch of stuff in the house just wasn't really getting done between both of us. And we were just like, oh man, I'm just waiting on somebody to sweep those floors. Uh, and so, yeah, we, we, we just found a, our third roommate who we literally will have a third roommate soon, but soon. Yeah. Congratulations. That's exciting. Yeah. Pretty cool. Okay. Let's get to our final segment. Quick hits. These are quick questions, quick answers. 
just like conversational marketing with qualified.com. Qualified prospects are on your website right now, and you can talk to them quickly with qualified.com. I don't need to tell you this, Susan. You know, but for our listeners who don't know, just go listen to what Susan said earlier. Qualified's the best. Go to qualified.com to learn more. Quick hit. Susan, are you ready? I'm ready. Bring it. Number one, do you have a favorite TV show or book or podcast that you've been listening to recently? Yeah. So I found, stumbled on a guy named Chris Shambra, who wrote a book called Gratitude and Pasta. And the book's a super easy read. You can read it in a couple hours and um, follow some of the best practices in there. It helps you make better connections with your friends and family and coworkers. But it also makes you a more thankful, grateful person, which increases your happiness overall. So highly recommend that book. If you weren't in marketing or business at all, what do you think you'd be doing? I think I might be teaching Came out of school, university as a math major, and I've always enjoyed helping people learn. In fact, that's kind of the highlight of my career right now is helping people learn how to be better marketers. Love watching people I've worked with excel in their careers, grow into CMOs themselves, uh, promote my current team in their learning and growth. So hopefully teaching and helping people excel. What's your best advice for a first-time CMO trying to figure out their demand gen strategy? Well, I guess I would say what I started this conversation with, which is you got to do everything right. But don't let that overwhelm you. Start tackling one thing at a time, but make sure it's all strung together. There is no silver bullet. Don't let sales tell you that if only they had a single one-pager that they could get the deal done because they will keep telling you that and you'll be on, I call it treadmill marketing, when you are constantly producing one little small thing for sales, it's not being reused or scalable in any way in the organization and you're on the treadmill, you're running, 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 but you're going nowhere. So get off the treadmill, create a strategy and make sure it goes all the way through the funnel and pulls the string tight, make sure it's consistent. Susan, it's been absolutely wonderful having you on the show. If you're in government and you're listening and you want to learn more, go to granicus.com. Any final thoughts? Anything to plug? Uh, no, Ian, thanks for having me. I, I hope that like other folks you've had on this podcast, that something I said is going to resonate, but I'm totally open to conversations. Find me on LinkedIn. Let's connect. Let's build our own community and um, make sure we build the best marketing we can for every business out there. Couldn't agree more. Thanks again. Thank you. The ManGen Visionaries is brought to you by our friends at Qualified.com, a conversational marketing company that's on a mission to transform the way B2B companies sell. Go to Qualified.com to learn more.